Hi, everybody, and welcome to part two of our sermon series on the book of Mark. We're working through uh, Mark part one. Joining me, as with last uh, week, is uh, Lindsay. Say hi, Lindsay. Hello. Yep. And we're going to be talking through more of the language details of our, uh, our story from Mark here and some of the weird things we might find and understand. Uh, so I'm excited about this. This is a good conversation. Uh, go ahead and have a listen. I will, uh, I will take a minute now, though, and say that it's worth, we, we've kind of gone a little afield talking into like interpretation and understanding a bit more than I intended at the beginning. But Sorry. No, no, that's fine. It's, it's, we're literally on the first episode. Finding ways to talk about this stuff is, is worth, uh, worth doing. I am going to take a minute, though, and call attention to a, a fact that we can dig into here, which is, uh, and I'm not sure if you realize this, but the Bible was not originally written in English. I'm well aware of this fact. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people are not well aware of that fact. And I can't even tell you how many times I have heard people to tell me to just go back to start using the original King James. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. people, people we are related to. It is something that has happened. And it is infuriating because the, uh, do you know what language the New Testament was written in? Is, I mean, is it still, I thought it was, uh, was it, wasn't it Arabic? No, uh, there are there are three languages uh, used in the Bible. The Old Testament is written in ancient Hebrew, with Hebrew. the exception of a couple of books, Daniel and a few parts of a couple others, which are written in Aramaic. Aramaic is what I was thinking, not Arabic. Okay, there we go. Now, I'm called, sorry. There are certain versions of of orthodox christianity that believe that the uh the new testament was written originally in aramaic but pretty much everybody agrees that the original versions of the new testament were written in greek now a little bit of uh, a language history for you just because this is i'm a language geek and this makes me kind of chuckle somewhat uh did you know that hebrew is the only zombie language in the world what do you mean by zombie language I mean that it's the only language known to have died a natural death and then been resurrected. So I'll give you the backstory on that because it's, it is, in my mind, quite interesting. Uh, the Hebrew language itself uh, was originally used by the Israelite tribes and what have you uh, throughout the Old Testament period, uh, throughout the various exiles and what have you. But over time, it became more and more the language of the priests. Um, the, the, you know, the, the Hebrew priests and scribes and eventually the rabbis and Hebrew itself naturally evolved into its, its, you know, its daughter language, Aramaic. Okay. Um, and so Aramaic was the Italian to Hebrew's Latin. Make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, shortly after Jesus, there were a couple of rebellions, and the Romans said, okay, that's it. We're done having Jews now. Uh, you, you, you don't have to go home, or you, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here, because here's home, and you can't stay here. Bye. Uh, and kicked everybody out of Jerusalem who was Jewish, uh, and Israel, and just scattered the Jews to the winds. Uh, that was the beginning of the Jewish diaspora, and they settled in communities all around the world, and they were centered around their, their rabbis and their religious institutions. And I, I as a white Christian male preacher, I cannot do justice to the Jewish diaspora throughout history. 
Uh, I will just simply say that the Hebrew language persevered as the language of the, of the, the Israel religion, uh, the Jewish religion, throughout that period. Aramaic, in the meantime, continued to evolve and eventually passed mostly into history, evolving into its child language, Arabic. Yes. Now, the Hebrew language was pretty much just the priestly language taught in religious ceremonies uh, until just after the Holocaust when everyone decided, okay, I think at this point there should be an Israel again. Um, and again, not going to get into the details surrounding that because, oh God, that's another world mess up here. We don't have time to make justice out of that one. Yeah, that's, I'm not going to touch that one yet. Um, but in the process of creating the, Jew, the new Israel Jewish state, they decided, you know what, we're all going to speak Hebrew now. And so they took priestly Hebrew, which had been the only unifying factor, and everybody just started speaking it to their kids and resurrected it as a language. So now you have Hebrew and its grandchild Arabic existing simultaneously in the world. Okay. Yeah. So that'd be, it'd be basically like if Vatican City were a much larger and more powerful national concern with a huge nation and a whole bunch of people speaking Latin right alongside a whole bunch of people speaking Italian. It'd be very confusing. Yes. Yeah. So uh, anyway, that was my digression on biblical languages. But what we're looking at here is Greek. Now, I always try to encourage people to look at uh, the actual languages in as much as they can when trying to figure this stuff out. So what I'm going to do now, I'm actually going to share my screen here. Um, and let's go over here. And this is a website that I typically use when taking apart the text. Now, this is called Blue Letter Bible. Have you ever heard of this one? No, I haven't. Blue Letter Bible is a very, very useful uh, website. Its main page is back over here. Uh, you choose which of these small handful of translations, uh, English translations, you want to base yourself on. Uh, I'll use the, I usually use the NRSV that's not available here. So I'll default to the NIV. And then you just search for whatever text you want to work with. We're working on a Mark one. I'm going to go there. And that brings you up here. Now, where this gets interesting is you pick your verse. Hang on a minute. Are you able to okay. see? Anything? Yeah. Yeah. We got Greek and we've got it in two flavors, interlinear and reverse interlinear. You know what those mean? No, I do not. Interlinear means here's the Greek and all the Greek words in order. And here's a rough translation of what they mean. Um, okay. Reverse interlinear is here are the English words in order uh, of the translation that you've chosen. And here are the Greek words they correspond to. So you're either following it through the order of words in, in Greek the interlinear or English, the reverse interlinear and seeing what matches to what. Oh, okay. I like this. Yeah. Now this is, this is simple enough on its own. Um, but where it gets interesting, I like to use the interlinear because I, or the interlinear because I read roughly Greek well enough. But the, the one thing that's always fun to do is you see this middle category here, you've got inflected root and transliterated, basically the Greek. Yes. The English here. And then this one here in the middle called Strong's. You got a guess as to what that is? I do not have a guess, actually. Not even a joke, huh? That's beside the point. 
like some sort of old circus timey performer, like, oh, I'm going to beat the Bible with a old timey mallet. No, nothing like that. I would like that. That would be a good button to have. Yeah, uh, I, I'm just imagining one of those like bar games where you know where you, you punch the bag and it gives a readout, but instead of the bag, it's just got an old timey Bible. Yes. Yeah, I, I can see that being terrifyingly attractive to some folks. I feel like there's a market for that. There might be. There might be. So you click on that. And I'll, I'm opening this in a new tab because it's easier. And I've chosen Arche here, which is literally the beginning. Okay. Brings up Strong's uh, lexicon, which is basically the, the full super dictionary take apart of this term. Okay. So the outline of biblical usage is kind of a general way that this word is used throughout the Bible. Beginning, origin, the person that commences, that by which anything being the extremity of a thing, the corners of a sale for some reason, that can sometimes be the case. Uh, principality, ruler, magistrate, something relating to angels and demons. There's a lot more there than simply just the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is your first introduction to the fact that uh, holy crap, this is not English, and you can't directly translate anything. Um, the official dictionary definition is the one you'll see here, Strong's definition. Arche, okay. uh, from this word here, which is its older root, uh, a commencement or chief in various orders of time, beginning, corner, uh, magistrate, power, principality, principle, or rule. Um, so in terms of biblical terms, this one is not that far off of our use for beginning in English. Um, it's, it's close. There's some variation here where you can say, oh, that's interesting. That could probably be used in a different way. But when you go back, close this, and look at the actual text itself, you're like, okay, uh, RK at the beginning of verse one, the beginning, right? The beginning, the gospel. Fits. The, and that's in a, a possessive form here to, to spare you the Greek grammar. The beginning of the gospel. Okay. Because Greek does, doesn't do prepositions quite so much. They just do a lot of yeah. variations of the. Uh, okay. So they use their grammar. They got a billion different grammar forms and they all indicate like possessive or passive constructs and stuff like that. So RK to Evangelion, uh, literally the beginning of the gospel. Straightforward. Now, another fun fact to look at, this word here. Have you noticed gospel here and evangelion? Or, e yeah, evangelion. Uh, which okay. I'm not referring to the, uh, was it, late 90s Japanese anime of the same name? Um, this, no. is, this is not the beginning of the Neon Genesis Evangelion. This is the beginning of To Evangelion, which is a very different thing. Um, this one is always interesting to look at, too. Um, because this is the word that we take to be both gospel and evangelize. Um, and the very first definition in biblical usage, a reward mm -hmm. for good tidings. Okay. So there's like, there's a lot here. Um, and even Strong's is just giving you general stuff here. The, the, the archaeohistorical approach to this word can go even deeper and figure out, wow, Evangelion, before there was a gospel, had a lot of different meanings. Uh, let's see, it's biblical usage is uh, in the King James, gospel, gospel of Christ, gospel of God, gospel of, king, of the kingdom, and also miscellaneous. Hmm. Miscellaneous. 
So like you look at all the different places it shows up. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Uh, being the good news of Jesus and Mark, here we have the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near, he said. Okay, that's also going to be evangelion. So someone saying the kingdom of God has come is the same as saying this is the good news of Christ. Like those are wildly different in context, but they're using the same word. Yeah. So anyway, that's different ways we can pick that out. So one of the first things I do when I'm when I'm kind of terrassing through a sermon is I look at the text in English and I look for troublesome words or phrases. Now you are, at least from listening to me rant from time to time, you're familiar with my impression of historical biblical translation, yes? Yes. Yeah. So what you're looking for here are words and phrases that may have been culturally misappropriated. You're looking for words or phrases that, I wrote this in my notes, uh, you're looking for what seems like something that might have possibly been screwed up by a drunk monk in the 12th century writing a translation with nothing but absinthe and patriarchy as his writing buddies. Okay, sounds um, about right. Yeah, so that's the kind of stuff you're looking for here, because the minute you see that and start parsing the Greek or the Hebrew or the Aramaic, you can be like, hang on a second. So you go verse by verse. Um, we just kind of did that for Mark 1. Mark 2, as is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Anything in there you want to poke at? Um, sorry, I'm being distracted by the uh, deafening screeches coming from behind me. <clears throat> want to do that one one more time? What was As is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Anything you want to poke at in there? Anything that seems suspicious? Anything sus? Uh, no, I mean, sounds pretty, pretty, he's sending a messenger ahead of him, but why? Is, is messenger, does messenger mean messenger? Well, uh, that, that now you're thinking, now you're thinking like a, like a reader of the scripture. Oh, fun fact, I send is from apostello, literally apostle. Oh. Um, so it's from the word to send. Uh, oh, here we go. The word for messenger. Angelon from angelos. Does that sound uh, like something you might know in English? Angels. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's where that one comes from. So, angelos. Let's take a look here. Uh Translated as messenger seven times. Translated as angel 179 times. Oh, that's weird. Weird. Uh, that's a choice. That's a choice. Uh, and now you start to now you start yeah. to see like the Catholic take on there are angels, big winged babies who run around shooting arrows at people who definitely just want to have sex. Um, you know that take on angels versus the actual word, which is a messenger envoy. One who is sent, an angel, a messenger from God. They're like the idea of just someone who's got a message from the big guy upstairs is literally what Angelos means. Yep. So that kind of puts an interesting turn on things. So none of them had wings. You know, I'm not going to get into a 
too much, but the few cases where the actual mystical creatures known as angels are described yeah. in the Bible. Yeah, they're, they're not, not described as winged babies. They're described as no. eldritch horrors that would cause your brain to melt. Yeah, they're terrifying. Yeah, utterly freaking, like insane. So right there, this is one of the things I love about doing the language exegesis portion here is that you look at it and you're like, okay, I was not expecting that answer. Yeah. Like I was expecting something was going to be weird here, but that makes a whole bunch of other stuff seem weird now. Yeah, it makes everything seem a little more sus. Yeah. So we dig into it. Um, Anglosego pro prosperon su hodos, uh, hodos, not hodor, just so you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, hodor does not actually get a, a shout out in the Bible, sorry, even though Greek does kind of sound like that. Um, so verse three, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Anything there you want to check out? I mean, it does word by word, not phrases, so no. Okay. All right, so this is, this is what we're going to do for a minute here for, for this part. I'm just going to go verse by verse, and you tell me what looks interesting, and we're going to rip it apart a bit. So verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, first of all, I want to make sure that wilderness means wilderness. All right. Again, Johannes ho baptizo. En ho eremos. Sorry, it's uh, eremo. All right, wilderness. Eremo. Wilderness, desert, desolate, or solitary place. Okay. Uh, so, solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited is kind of your primary biblical usage. Um, it's interesting because Eremos here seems to focus more on the solitary aspect of it and less on the natural aspect of it. Yeah. So it's less saying, like, he probably was out in the middle of freaking nowhere in order to accomplish this, but the right. nature of that isolation is secondary to the personal and spiritual isolation being described here. Um, and it's interesting here, if you look at kind of 3B, uh, of a flock deserted by the shepherd. So that, okay. can, that can give you some insight into how John may have been feeling in that isolation, too. Uh, let's see, where's our biblical usage here? You know, wilderness, desert, desolate, or solitude. Um, Strong's itself, of uncertain affinity. So right there, we don't know totally what it means. We don't know what it's totally connected to. Uh, but the stress here is lonesome. Um, yeah, solitary, lonesome. Yeah. Employed as a noun once in a while, it can be used as waste. Uh, so there is a discardant sense to it. Yes. Now... This is a question you find yourself asking a lot when you're doing linguistic exegesis, which is what this is called, where you're looking at the language of the text. Um, so we just learned a lot about the word wilderness here. Mm -hmm. the, the question you want to ask as you're doing it is, 
uh, does this change our understanding of the text at all? Like we got it, we definitely have a much more nuanced understanding of what they were meaning. Does it change the general understanding of this particular verse at all? I mean, it deepens our understanding. It doesn't change anything really. It doesn't really change it. No, I wouldn't say. Yeah. And this is going to be something you'll find as you dig through the text a lot. There will be a lot of things that deepen your context understanding, that deepen the meaning of the text. You're not always going to find things that change the meaning a bit. Um, you'll find surprises. Not everything's going to be a change. Um, so John the Baptist preaching a baptism of forgiveness. Uh, baptisma. Want to take a look at this one? Yes, I would love to, actually. I thought you might. Let's take a look at baptisma. Uh, this is the, the neuter context noun. Uh, it is only ever translated as baptism. Um, so right away, it starts out the biblical usage as immersion or submersion. Um, now, the details given here uh, specifically with the relationship to John's baptism. That's what we're talking about here. That purification yeah. rite by which men on confessing their sins were bound to spiritual reformation. Like, so when they're describing the practice, even the water aspect doesn't even really show up. Like, no. John, the purification rite by which men confessed their sins and were bound to reformation. Uh, they obtained the pardon of their past sins, become qualified for the benefits of the upcoming Messiah's kingdom. Um, yeah, yeah, and there's no mention of it at all. Yeah, this was a valid Christian, it's considered a John's baptism, is considered according to this a valid Christian baptism, and it's the only this sort of baptism is the only one the apostles received. And uh, it is not recorded anywhere that anyone was rebaptized or that there was any other ritual plastic uh, process implied after Pentecost with the baptism by the Holy Spirit. Um, and then your C definition, Christian baptism, the rite of immersion in water is commanded by Christ, um, which again, uh, you know, we'll, yeah. we'll get into that more as we go along. This Christ does make some mentions to it here and there, but it's not quite as commanded by as, as this text might suggest. Um, and it makes, I love how it makes the note here. In Romans 3, Paul states we are baptized unto death. Um, like, uh, okay, but like there's more to it than that. So, yeah. Um, you look at the actual Strong's definition used uh, topically of calamities and afflictions with which one is quite overwhelmed. Um, so, and then specifically a John. So you've got a big difference. Like, right where did here. that one come from, though? Who made up that translation? Well, I don't know that it was made up. Like, we do have instances of made up translations in the Bible. Uh, if we ever get on to this the... This seems like that, though. Yeah, well, if we ever get on to the uh, to the um, the epistles, we'll talk a little bit about Paul and his affinity for making up words out of whole cloth. Um, uh -huh. Like, uh, yeah, our skin of tie. Um, but in the meantime, like, it's not made up so much as it is, like, I mean, all words are made up. Um, so this is more like a word whose meaning was changing during the period in which the Bible was being put down. Yeah. 
So like John's baptism, uh, that practice was becoming known as baptism in the time um, because it was meant to wash you free of those you know, topical calamities and afflictions um, yes. such, as, such as sin. So literally like the end of the calamities or something like that just becomes kind of like the calamities becomes the baptism. Like the, yeah. the, the language evolution part of it's there. It wouldn't have been such a big deal if we as Christians hadn't taken that right and run with it into the end zone like a crazy touchdown out of world religions. Um, but yeah, the, the word itself is very, very different from the practice that we've associated it with. So let's see. Let's move on from there. So we've got... Uh, talked about John the Baptist. We talked about the wilderness, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's move on to verse five. Okay, Liam, can you go out from here, please? Thank you, buddy. Hey, Will, I love you, buddy. I know you got your sad face on, but I'm trying to do a meeting here, okay? And now I'm going to have to edit this whole chunk out, okay? You want a hug before you go, since I'm going to have to edit this out anyway? There you go, well, do me a favor. Can you go find, shut the door and go find your mommy? Give her a hug too. Mommy's cleaning the trash. Okay. Well, I know mommy's taking the trash out. Um, okay. Can you shut the door behind you, buddy? I'm going to edit that whole chunk out. <laughs> hey, since we're going to edit this chunk out, I uh, figure it's a good time to ask can I smoke real quick? Uh, real? As I assume you don't want me to smoke on camera. I couldn't care less. No? No, I don't care. Ain't nothing the Bible okay. says you can't smoke. Okay, just making sure. Let me shut my garage door really fast. Hold on. Yeah. Exactly. We just got a giant trampoline, so I got to make sure there's no kids on the trampoline beforehand. Mm. Yeah, that'll do it. Yeah, right. it's beautiful. When we're not recording, I'll show yeah. it to you. All right, so getting back into it, uh, verse 5 is what we're going to tear up to now. Uh, the whole Judean countryside and the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Nothing really fancy there. I don't think we need to dig into. Right. All right. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Did you want to dig into that at all? I would love to dig into that, please. All right. What do you want to see? I mean... I'm assuming locusts were bugs, but. Yellow hair belt, leather around waist. His, his diet was locusts. Let's take a look at the bugs. Let's see what they got. Uh, Acris. Always translated as locust. Um, okay. a, locust, a locust, particularly the species which infest oriental countries, stripping fields and trees. Numberless swarms of them almost every spring are carried by the wind from Arabia into Palestine and having devastated that country, migrate to regions farther north until they perish by falling into the sea. The orientals accustomed to feed upon locusts, either raw, roasted or seasoned with salt or peppered in other ways, and the Israelites were also permitted to eat them. They were basically potato chips. Free sky potato chips. Exactly. Uh, Free sky yeah. chips. Okay. You know, side note, um, food randomly falling from heaven where you could eat it and it goes bad after a day-ish. Sound familiar? 
Like something the uh, Israelites may have encountered um, way back in the wilderness after the Exodus? Oh, I thought you were talking about Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs. Well, you know that too, but I was more referring to Mana from Heaven. <laughs> Uh, which are yeah, some Mana from Heaven, I guess, defend. would be more relevant to the conversation. I know. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is not last I checked uh, considered part of the biblical canon, although there are pushes in some circles to make it uh, part of the, the next version. I, I agree with those. I think it should be. I think it's an important part of the scripture. And lo unto him, he said that there would be meatballs falling from the sky. Amen. <laughs> should we say? At the, at the end of the prayer, he saith, Ramen. Yeah, ramen. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so the locusts are pretty much as we see. Uh, locusts, okay, but what about the honey? All right, well, let's take a look. Honey, meli aglion. So meli is uh, honey. On peyote. Yeah, not peyote. It's the primary root word, honey. Like, that's literally all it says, just it, it honey. Oh, well. Yeah. Now, does, uh, do does the, the wild helpful. add anything to it? The adjective yeah. wild honey? Uh, living or growing in the fields of woods. So it, <laughs> hmm. I'm not going to say it's a legit translation, but, you know, of men and animals in a moral sense, wild, savage, or fierce. Um, you know, savage honey. Fierce honey. You know, which is not in fact wait go go back out hold on i'm trying to read it's tiny on my screen violent passions vehement furious okay okay i mean violently well, passionate is, honey that is so generally meant like to refer to so that is generally meant to refer to people in that sense i'm not going to i'm not going to definitively say that this was mind-altering honey but there's enough here for me to say i can't intellectually rule it out can't say it wasn't uh, Jesus be sipping on that psychedelic honey. Yeah. All right, verse seven. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Okay. Anything you want to poke at? I would like to know what powerful translates to. Right. You're getting the hang of this now. You're, you're getting an idea of what you want to poke at. Like trying to root out what words could really change the meaning of, mm -hmm. of the stanza mm -hmm. itself. All right. Mightier. Uh, we've got Iskuroteros. Mighty, strong, strong man, boisterous, powerful, valiant, uh, make his real great again type stuff. Um, one who has strength of soul to sustain the attacks of Satan, strong and therefore exhibiting many excellences. Um, okay. Not uncommon in that time to associate um, strength of soul with strength of body. Um, which it is worth noting that that's a, that is a disconnect we make modernly. Like we see strength and mental aptitude as different things. Um, they're one and the same, truly. So Yeah. No, well, there weren't as many fat people in those days. Yeah. Lord knows I wouldn't have made it. But, you know. I think there were more more larger people than there were smaller people at the time personally but larger and more muscular definitely you know it's what a diet of locusts and crazy honey will do to you yeah you know 
They were definitely right. strong. Yeah. So nothing, nothing I think that we can get from that. Not even I, after me, not and I was. Yes, I don't think there's much there that we can take apart. On the yeah. last the last line in this section, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We've already looked at baptize. Anything else you want to pick out in there? Water. Okay. Pretty sure that Is was it just water. I'm pretty sure it's just going to be water, but we'll take a look. Hydor, literally the word from which we get hydrate. Okay, so fair. Yeah. Probably so just water. Take a look just to be safe. Uh Water, water and rivers, water the deluge, water in any of Earth's repositories. Water is the primary element. The waves of the sea, uh, used by many peoples. Yeah, it water. It's it sounds pretty liquid. It, it it's wet, yo. Pretty, um, pretty damp. Yeah, it, it moist, if you will. Okay, we could say moist. All right. So, at the time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Thank you, Mark. Straightforward sentences. I don't think we need to take anything from that one. Pretty straightforward. I like it. Cut and dry. All right. I'm guessing you're going to want to look at verse 10. Though. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Yeah. Um, I'll break out a lot of that. What do we got here? Immediately coming up out of water, he saw. What's it? Okay, go to he saw. Hang on, I hit, I hit something here. Sorry. There you go. Okay, he saw. What I want to know if it could be metaphoric, or if it's. What do you think? Oh, to see with the mind to perceive. To know, to become acquainted to with. To know. Yeah. So, you know, okay, that's hard. Yeah. So, yeah. it could be a metaphoric meaning. Yeah, it's possible. We don't know. Uh, and and it's, it is worth knowing that this is also one of the primary words used for to see. So, a literal understanding is not out of the realm of possibility and is, in fact, a likely answer as well. Um, we don't really have enough information to say definitively if saw with his I think, eyes or I, mentally okay, but I think, correct. I think that he's not seeing it visually because of the way it's it's written, because it says he saw. It's being written from an outside perspective, saying what he quote unquote saw. So if the other person that's writing this witnessed it and didn't also see this happen, then it's only to be construed that it would obviously had to have been a personal realization, so to speak, that he told to other people and it's correct to identify because that grammar of that is in the third person singular or is active indicative um yeah so you know grammatically you are correct that is how it's being presented and that's a legitimate like i remember back in seminary we debated this a little bit and that was actually the position i took was that if this was written and other people saw it wouldn't it be they saw you're absolutely right i think to take that position and that is a legitimate position to take. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's reasonably defensible. Uh, I think most academics would agree. I don't know that everyone would agree because there's a lot of people out there who are like, but if only Jesus saw it, then it's not a miracle. Oh. Well, a lot of things aren't as miraculous as they wish they were. Yeah. And a lot of things uh, are miraculous without the whole world witnessing it either. 
Yeah. And doesn't have to be a public display. Yeah. And the thing is, you could write an entire sermon about this one word and the discussion we're having about it is, you know, does the fact that Jesus was the only one who saw it change the meaning of this passage to you? Is it less divine if only Jesus had this interaction, if it was just for him or if everybody saw it? I definitely think it takes away the magical aspect of it. But magical in what way, though? Like, what is the magic of this particular verse here? Is the magic that the heavens are being opened up and God is stumbling down and saying, hey, this here, my boy. Uh, or is the magic of it the interaction between Jesus and God and that moment of recognition? Uh, that I think that's more of what the emphasis should be, but when it's being taught to us as children, what's being taught is the mystical, magical being part of the whole thing. We're right. being taught about this supernatural being. In every story, the emphasis is on how supernatural it is and how this is totally miraculous and crazy and we can't even fathom it because it was so miraculous. And it's like, so then it, it kind of builds up this, this amplitude in yourself where like, if it's not this ground shaking, earth breaking, everyone witnessing it, big power of God moment, it's not a miracle. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to take a minute here and I'm going to present you with my favorite theological question I've ever heard asked. And the minute oh, I, I like say it, it, I guarantee you're going to roll your eyes. Okay. Um, a, a, a philosopher by the name of William uh, asked this some 25, maybe 30, I don't know exactly how many years ago. And he asked the question, what does God need with a starship? That philosopher, of course, being William Shatner. Um, okay. Oh, come on. You don't get a good Star Trek joke? <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm rolling your eyes as anticipated. I know. Exactly um, as anticipated. <laughs> But that, that does, you know, I, that does actually portray to a lot of biblical interpretation. What does God need? What does God need with a crowd of people who are seeing how awesome God is? What does God need with worshipers? I don't believe that God's magnitude is decreased uh, because not everybody saw it. And I think that there is God, is, God is miraculous and powerful whether or not God chooses to display that to us. Okay um in in the ways we expect um uh, yeah you know we don't need pillar the whole the whole arc of the new testament is we don't need pillars of fire anymore we have jesus and our own ability to discern the world around us so stop looking for god to be such you know a massive pillar of fire screeching from the heavens like lemetatron and start actually looking to work with god that's like the general arc of the gospels in the new testament is hey your partner's in this now stop asking for papa god to do stuff for you in that way yeah, just do um, your own shit. <laughs> yeah. So knowing it, knowing that that's the arc we're going for here, I think it's almost better to understand it that way. To set aside this whole flaming tower image of God and say, no, this was an intimate moment between quote unquote father and quote unquote son. And I put those in quotes because discussions of the gender of either of them are broader than we're going to get into today. Um, yes. But the simplest way to explain it is Jesus was trans and uh, the, you know, the Almighty probably does not have dangly parts. No, or has all of them. So, um, yeah, I think it was I think it's describing more of an intimate moment that uh, Jesus in the story has. Has experienced themselves and are translating to someone else who is then translating it into the story. Right. All right.
So as we're getting close to time here, I want to finish by rolling through these last two verses here. Okay. So, um, was there anything else in 11 here you wanted to take apart? Oh, hold on. We got a, um, uh, a voice. Well, we'll get to 11 in a second. Anything in 10 you wanted to take apart? We, we did torn open. Um, uh, out of yeah, the no, I think, I think that's pretty. I think, I think we're good to move on. So let's look at 11. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Anything you want to look at there? What is heaven? Is heaven just heaven? Well, heaven is a, a very interesting term throughout the Bible. Yeah, that's... Uh, fun fact, even in the NASB, a voice came out of Uranos, the heavens. Um, and that is genitive plural. So it's not heaven, it's the heavens. Okay, so that's a that that's interesting. The grammar already is is uh, giving us a different picture. Uh, let's see. Uh, heaven, air, sky, heavenly, uh, the vaulted expanse of the sky with all things visible in it is the primary definition. Yeah, because in like, you know, older writings and stuff that I've read, not not exactly biblical, but, you know, literary, mm -hmm. uh, it, it typically refers to the, the sky and the stars. Yeah. Um, being able to see space in the universe. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's worth noting the, the number two definition, the region above the side real heavens, the seat of the order of things, eternal and consummately perfect, where God dwells in other heavenly beings. Yeah, that's the second definition. Like, right away, we can we can see that this is primitive linguistics here. This is a connection between God and sky. This isn't yeah. like specifically referring to a divine transtemporal location from which God is broadcasting on a ham radio. Yes. Um, so, you know, grab another one of them grains of salt here. It's not as literal as you think. Uh, and in case you haven't gathered by now, you can probably already tell biblical literalism is bull. Yep. Yeah, because, you know, English yep. literalism isn't the same. No. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of words that don't have a literal English translation to them already. Almost like, all I, know, I, know, I know you and I have experienced that while I'm trying to understand different languages that you can speak that I can't fathom. And you're like, there's not. A literal translation for this word you know mm -hmm. and i think i think there's a lot of misconceptions with the bible and that's why there's so many offshoots is because of the literary differences that people choose to take liberty with yeah and like we can not even taking liberty we can take a look at what translations have done over history i mean we could do an entire episode just talking about how the word uh, homosexual was a late addition to the bible like in the last hundred years i would love to because i that is like when we finish our gospel exploration, we'll dig into some of the clobber passages and stuff like that too. We'll have some fun with that. Um, but yeah, no, biblical translations have always been a bit of a of a you know a dice throw here for that reason. People keep trying to impose ideological beliefs on their linguistic analysis rather than just simply trying to be as faithful to the text as you can. And there have been a number of more recent attempts to do this. Um, like I haven't read it, re I haven't read it yet. But like Robert Alter's take on the Old Testament is supposedly really good. I haven't heard anyone make a crack on the New Testament yet since the message, which wasn't great. Wasn't uh, notable. Yeah, I, it's like every time I see someone try to take a crack at the New Testament, it's like, 
the New Testament version two, hipper, now with twice as many skateboards on the cover. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, come on, guys. It's the Bible. You can do better. Uh, all right. So moving on to our last couple of verses here. Verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. Okay. Um, spirit? Oh, before we get Spirit, I actually kind of want to take a look at Kai Uthos here uh, immediately. Okay. Um, mostly because my original reading of the text is like that immediate is super immediate. I want to see how immediate we're dealing with here. Yeah, how, how soon is soon, you know? Yeah, straight, right, immediately, straight away, and on, and by, forthwith, straight level, straightforward, upright, true, sincere, straight away, immediately, for, okay, yeah. Definitely, like that. Second. So it chased him, like yeah. Broomstick like, in hand, oh, move your divine backside. Yeah, chased him with the cast iron skillet. Yeah, throwing a flip flop at his head, whole deal. Um, oh yeah, yeah. So this is this is as immediate as one might probably be. Um, and immediately, the spirit. Um, which we'll take a minute to look at spirit too. While we're at it. Um, which, interestingly enough, I don't know if you know of the origin of the word spirit, um, pneuma. Uh, and, and I don't mean that in, in like pneuma, pneuma, yay terms. Um, oh, okay, okay. Uh, pneuma is in the origin of words like, like P-N-E-U-M-A, pneuma, with the sign okay. of P. The origin of words in English like pneumatic or pneumonia. Okay. Um, because it has to do with breath. And that actually is a carryover from Hebrew, where the word for spirit, ruach, was uh, related to, was literally the breath of life. So is it possible that he just got like really sick after being, if, okay, if we want to go with the water theory, is mm -hmm. it possible that it's saying more that like he was, he was dunked into the water, it was too cold, got pneumonia, he's quote unquote chased immediately into the wilderness but maybe he was like hypothermic and like getting sick and then was put into isolation because they were you know back then they don't know what's contagious maybe he you know i think that's probably a stretch yeah um, i think i think hallucinogenics make more sense <laughs> yeah you would um <laughs> but i think it is it, it is noting that the 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 thing which is pushing him out here is not like some raging abstract presence here like the spirit is described often in terms of wind and breath so it is a physical force that he's feeling here okay so he's like physically being pushed by like yeah so there that's not to say that like he's picked up and bodily thrown down to the wilderness although i did not do I mean, long there could have been a water spout. You never know. You know, I did not too long ago do do a sermon entitled "And the Spirit Yeets" that was specifically about Jesus being yeeted out in the wilderness like that. That's what I'm saying. Is I mean, it's perfectly possible they were out in the lake trying to do a little dip, dip real quick, dunk Jesus, and all of a sudden the winds stir up because you know it's Jesus. Yeah. And water spout picks him up and yeets his ass out into the wilderness where he is forced to be in, you know, you seclusion. Know, it's and not he's probably impossible. suffering some form of hallucinations from the amount of, I mean, head trauma to begin with. Yeah. Also, probably the, you know, wild peyote honey he just took. Yeah, not so, at yeah, all impossible. 
probably took him 40 days just to figure out which way was home. Yeah. And what was the one thing you wanted to look at too, by the way? Um, I was, I was kind of worried or focused on the, the usage of like, uh, where is it? Hold on, slow down. Implied him. Impelled what him. What does that mean? The spirit basically pushed him out. Okay, uh, to go out into the wilderness. Like that whole phrase right there, I feel like they're trying to trick us. All right, so um, the spirit, the, this is where you got to know a little bit of Greek to get this here because Altos is basically him. Yes. So the, the interlinear doesn't line up super well here. Um, and the, basically, ekbalo is literally a prepositional construct um, of balo, which is to, to throw, kind of. Uh, okay. And ek, which is out, literally to throw out, to cast out, uh, with a notion of violence. So, so you know... Two yeah. weeks is actually a legit translation of ekbalo in this context. I, I, you know, I said as much in my sermon from weeks and weeks ago, but yeah, you could literally yeah, say so this, He was yeeted into the wilderness upon being baptized. Absolutely. That is a legit translation uh, to, to say. Um, so I'm going with psychedelic water spout Jesus is what's happening here. Yeah. You could easily say at once the spirit, the spirit done yeeted him out into the wilderness. Yeah, that's essentially what it's telling us is they threw his ass out there. Yeah. Violently. Is, this is not a calm process. No. All right. So um, last one, and I'm sure there's one last thing you're going to want to touch in here, I'm sure. Verse 13, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we already know about angels because we've talked about that word already. 40 days, I'm assuming that this has been translated correctly, at least hopefully. But how long is 40 days? Does that really mean 40 days? Yeah, I mean, Himera is, is days. Um, I gotta move this a little bit. Yeah, it's, it's the word 40. It's for literally 40 days. So we're fine. Okay, okay. Okay, so go down a little bit more. Being tempted by... Being tempted. All right, take a look at that. And then obviously I want to know what the definition of Satan is. Tempt, try, prove, essay, examine. Um, now, it's worth noting that this is more... Like to tempt isn't like to be like, aha, I, I am wanting to offer you a bad thing. To tempt, uh, particularly in Greek and in Hebrew as well, is more about like legal testing, like to, to see if, to examine a person, to cross-examine a person, to uh, you know, give you the whole uh, assessment, how do you do? Test them on right and wrong, so to speak. Right. Um, and, you know, the details of the test are not made plain, but, you know, it is usual a fairly intense test, which is why it's worth noting, and, and I find it, because I know a bit about translation in the Old Testament as well, I find it interesting that he uses the phrase, the phrase, you know, paralyzo uh, uh, satana, literally by Satan, uh, because Satan doesn't come up very much in the New Testament. 
because I, I don't, we don't have too much time to get into this, but I'm going to ask this question. Yeah. What do you know about Satan? Like the actual biblical Satan. What I know about Satan and what the Bible says about Satan are two very different people. Yeah. And that's, that's the biggest thing I know about Satan right there is that my Satan and your Satan are completely different beings. Exactly. And that's because the, the, the Satan of the Bible, Hasatan, is one of the good guys. Like, I can't stress this enough. Even going back to Job where he makes his first major appearance, Hasatan is God's prosecuting attorney, basically. Uh, and you get some of this more out of the Midrash than out of the actual text itself. But the general understanding of Satan was he's God's prosecuting attorney. It's his job to step down and make sure that the good people are good enough. Uh, that if God's going to use this tool, this person, to do a thing, that they are able to do that thing, that they are fit for the task. Um, so if you look at the book of Job, for example, literally that whole story is God's prosecuting attorney saying, all right, we want to see if this guy's good. I'm going to do the thing. And God's like, okay, do the thing. I, I believe this guy is good enough. And then Satan yeah. does the thing and brutalizes Job for an entire book. And at the end, Job's like, yeah, I'm good enough to do the thing. And Hasatan's like, yeah, he's good enough to do the thing. And God's like, yeah, he's good enough to do the thing. Have a new family. There you go. Yeah, um, you know? You know, so that is you know, the role that Satan generally plays in the Bible, is an agent of God who is there to, to verify. And it makes absolute sense that the Messiah, the son of God, would have as their first divine encounter the divine prosecuting attorney. All right, you're here to do the thing. First, you got to go through a meeting. Yeah. Like, you know, this is absolutely, unex like, not unexpected. This is No, it seems like a pretty rational step. Yeah, this is exactly what one would expect God to do in that scenario. Okay, you're here, you're going to do the thing, but before you do, let's run you past the prosecuting attorney, make sure everything's in order. Exactly. Sit down with daddy's lawyer and make sure you've got your ducks in a row before you start going to change the world. Yeah, you're not going to take over the family business until you talk to the lawyers and make sure we're good. Yeah, and that's, you know, we've... we've pretty kind standard. Of, we've, we, we've white people that pretty heavily for a moment, but, you know, that is generally the... Uh, got to dumb it down sometimes, you know? Yeah, you know, got to own who we are. But, you know, that is the general arc there is it's not like some impossibly malicious force, some great enemy hiding behind the shadows. No, this is God doing God things. The spirit sent Jesus out here uh, to have this encounter with the divine prosecutor to make sure that everything works the way it's supposed. Yeah, it's, pretty straightforward, cut and dry. That's what it should yeah, be. Exactly. And I think that's probably... Like, there's more we could talk about here. I mean, we, we had Angelos already, um, you know, and it's pretty straightforward from here. We've gotten, I think, as far as we can with the time we have. Um, there's okay. always going to be more we can say. Um, but I, I want to stop the share right now. And I, I, I want to end by asking you, what's your takeaway so far from this beginning passage, Mark? What, what do you think? I think uh, John the Baptist was a pretty rad hippie guy and um, his baptisms were a uh, pretty, pretty cool practice that he was doing that was making people feel real good inside. I think that um, 
just like any, you know, attraction, there were different levels to it. And I think he understood was led in some sort of way to see that Jesus needed a little extra nudge in it. I still firmly believe that this is a slightly more confirmational of psychedelic Jesus um, being a thing. I still think that he was likely, um, whether it be a natural force that was occurring within him that, you know, God just came in and was like, here's some more chemicals, bud. Or if it was, you know, the honey. But I think, I think Jesus had a vivid moment with the Lord and, um, was yeeted violently into uh, the attorney's office. Yeah. Like, I think, again, I can't verify for you that psychedelics were involved. I can't actually say that. Um, but, you know, in fairness, I can't rule it out either. Um, but well, I, I mean, hold on real quick. The attorney's job is to put Jesus under stress and to test him and ensure he's prepared, right? What better way to make sure you can handle yourself under stress than to get you just to the point where you are tripping out, yeet you with the wind way into the wilderness and then sit you in front of an attorney for God. You know, I I feel like that is the setup for the most stressful test you could possibly have. And of course it's going to be the test you have before being the son of God. You know, I'm not going to say you're right, but I'm not going to say you're wrong. Um, you know, but that's even, what I've gotten from the text. So far. even, even if the specific details of your interpretation are, are questionable, the, the, the under, the emotional understanding is, is dead on. Like that is the situation we're presented with here. It is procedural and it's meant to, to tempt and to, to tempt in the sense of to test. Yes. Um, and that's what we're getting out of here is, is this is a planned thing. This is set up. Uh, and is meant to to put Jesus to the test. It's not like some great good and evil fight. This is simply God doing his due diligence. Yeah. It's God crossing his T's and dotting his I's. All right. So I think that's where we're going to end it for today. Um, For those of you who stuck through for both parts of this video, I want to say thanks for sticking with us. Uh, thank you, Lindsay, for, for joining us for, the, for this two-part. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next one uh, next week as we start to tear into the next couple sections. We're going to keep, too, this, keep this ball rolling for a bit and see what more we can't find out. Uh, in the meantime, for those of you still watching, uh, I want to invite you to join up to our Discord server, which is where our conversations and stuff are happening. Uh, follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on YouTube. Uh, catch the podcast if this isn't where you're actually uh, listening to it in the first place. All of the links to this can be found on our website, and the link to that is in the description of literally wherever you are consuming this particular broadcast from, be it podcast, video, what have you. Link is always there in the description. Uh, in the meantime, uh, thank you all for sticking with us, and we'll, we'll catch you all uh, in the next one. Take care.